<laughs> Interior, Colt Winchester's house, daybreak. On the morning of March 17, 1997, Colt Winchester arose as he often did to the sound of a rooster crowing. Not a real rooster. The Kanab aliens sometimes made rooster sounds in the morning. Colt does his morning stretches that keep him limber at his advanced age and walks downstairs to prepare a simple breakfast. Two eggs on toast, one slice of white, one slice of wheat. Sipping on his official Bridges of Madison County coffee mug, he looks out of his front window over the town of Kanab, using his hand to shield his eyes from the glare of the giant gold cross. A field where Clark Gable and Marilyn Monroe each shot their final movie appearances in The Misfits is full of alien cannons aimed over his house. The set from the outlaw Josie Wales has been turned into an armory, into which all of the town's aliens march to be issued laser guns. A UFO flies in small circles over a peak where they shot Point Break. Colt sighs, looks over this legendary movie town, then nonchalantly walks down the stairs in his robe to his basement where he enters his DVD tunnel. He presses a button on the tunnel wall, and a large bank vault door with a giant wheel in the middle swings closed. The wheel spins nine times and the door is sealed. These days, most big-budget Hollywood productions are made with the full cooperation of the U.S. Department of Defense. The government certainly benefits from making propaganda, but there are other reasons for their involvement. We spoke to General Marvin S. Room. Time and time again, we've found that when Hollywood productions bring that much money and resources to an isolated environment, they have the potential, without intending, to mutate into a rogue government, terror cell, or cult. How often does this happen? More often than you think. We had a Jonestown situation on the set of Dodgeball that required Congress to officially declare war on Dodgeball, the movie, to get us to intervene. Obviously, you've heard about the Oklahoma City bombing. What you might not know is that all the people involved in the attack met and were given the necessary explosives training to carry out a similar attack of that scale on the set of Home Alone. But Cyber Cowboys was the largest such military action, correct? I'm not at liberty to disclose the extent of our operation there. Suffice to say, we did forcibly end the production of the movie and seize all assets that we found. What they did not find, however, was Denis, who disappeared along with several other people during the chaos of March 17th. In order to try and figure out what happened to Denis, we will attempt to retrace his steps on that day. Here's what we know to be true. At dawn that day, Denis was filming the final sequence of Cyber Cowboys. The sequence begins with the climactic duel between Costner's Bookman and Brando's Master Chief. Master Chief mortally wounds Bookman by striking him with his laser bat, which functionally seems to be a lightsaber, but it's wider and you can't stab people with it and it says Louisville Slugger on it in a sort of pink cursive. The fight takes place in the stomach section of Mayor Lancelot's Marissa Tomei Tower. During the fight, Mayor Lancelot watches from the balcony hurling invectives down at the combatants. Here's a clip. Fuck yeah! Fuck him up, Master Chief! Come on, baby! Boy, get me another crack cigar! Oh yeah, Daddy likey! Hey, Master Chief, kill him faster! 
My child's blood wine is getting cold. He's so skilled, I can't get to him. I can do this all day, little ant. Remember that Marlon Brando is 70 years old and extremely obese. He moves very little during this fight scene. In order to justify his superior fighting skills, Denis wrote into the script on page 194 that Master Chief was a mind reader and could predict where Bookman would strike. Too slow. Ah, my laser bat. Uh Uh-oh, lost your laser bat, asshole. You look real stupid. Ah! Master Chief slashes at Bookman as he falls back, slicing his chest. He falls to the ground. Master Chief stands over him. You must have read a lot of books on how to fight, but they're no match for my sword. Well, the pen is mightier than the sword. And then Kevin Costner pulls out a pen and stabs him in the neck. Oh, oh, geez, where's my gun? Ever the consummate professional, Walter Matthau kept up his manic performance as Mayor Lancelot, but after Bibby Munculus's death, he was a shell. Someone asked me whether the last day of Cyber Cowboys was the worst day of my life. I said there's no way that could be the worst day of my life, because I was already dead. The second I sent him to his grave, I became a walking clerical error, a corpse on clearance that could talk by mistake. So I resolved to make sure I died that day. Well, I'm still fucking here. Walter Matthau never left the train set, even as Denis made plans to drive the train into his makeshift Grand Canyon. In his final scene, he is killed by Steven Seagal's J. Toronto. Just after the laser bat fight, Toronto makes his move to finally control Infotrain. He drowns Mayor Lancelot in Lancelot's jacuzzi of blood. In the only take of that scene that was ever filmed, you can see Walter Matthau's hand pushing down on Seagal's hand, trying to actually drown himself. Toronto then races to the giant break at the top of the tower in an attempt to stop Infotrain from driving into the Grand Canyon. Bookman, badly wounded, wants to go stop Toronto, but Rolando Netscape sacrifices himself instead, while the Cortana takes Bookman off the train. That was supposed to be the librarian taking Bookman off the train, thus fulfilling the romantic subplot. But Elena Rothschild had left set weeks prior when she shot Gorilla Randy. So the Cortana, who in this script had been killed off at this point, becomes the much bigger character. They have a tearful scene as the Cortana cradles the dying Bookman as train car after train car hurtles by in the background. You can't die, Bookman. I love you. I thought you loved Rolando. Nope. Okay. Take my pens. He gives her a handful of Bic pens. These are the last pens in the world. The future society will need you to write down all the information, real information, and take off my jacket. I want you to have what's inside. Your jacket? What's inside it? Something that once helped other people build a future society. The Cortana takes off Bookman's jacket. She holds it up to the light. The lining is crinkled and beige, and at the top, in large old-timey letters, it reads, The Declaration of Independence. At that exact moment, Bookman dies, 
Rolando shoots Jay Toronto in the head, and the train careens off of the Grand Canyon edge. A massive explosion fills the background as we watch the Cortana read aloud the Declaration of Independence jacket. There's one take of Denise shooting this scene, the second to last shot he needed. It's the last footage we have. Certain inalienable rights, and among them are life. Yes. Liberty. Very good. And the pursuit of happiness. And this is where the train will go off the tracks when we finish the Grand Canyon and then explosion goes here. What the fuck was that? Oh, they're here! The Kanab aliens are here! All footage from Cyber Cowboys ends here. Everything that follows is cobbled together by military documents and the one or two insufficient eyewitness accounts we have. The previous footage was taken from the set in the aftermath of the battle by the military. We used our old friend the Freedom of Information Act to get that footage from the DOD. You can get anything from the government. All you have to do is fill out like two forms. I found out where the Lindbergh baby went. What we don't have is the camera, which, like Denise's body, was never found. That camera would likely have recorded the government seizing the nuke, the final fate of the aliens, along with providing closure about the final moments of many central characters. Frank Castle was certain the camera and Denis would be found together, as he said in his autobiography. I called Denis that night from Jimmy Buffett's car phone. I told him there was an army coming, maybe hundreds of special ops. Denis said he would hold the last camera tight until he was dead. I said he needed to prepare for war. Denis told me he had already been preparing for war, and he had made his remaining crew into a military unit. He had Dick Van Dyke stay up all night making powerful military uniforms for the crew. One of these uniforms was taken from the battlefield and preserved by the military. We took a look at it, and it... It's pretty sexy. Like latex shirt, shoulder frills with no sleeves. There was a belt that also had a leash. And there's like a latex sort of mask that zips all the way up. It doesn't serve much tactical purpose, but it is sexy. If you're into that kind of thing. I'm not. But I am. Hey, Dick. uh, We just wanted to ask you about the military powerful uniforms you designed. Ah, yes. Some of my best work. Dick, the music is a little loud. Can you... Vashley! Vashley, kill it with your beats! Wait, are you in a club right now? Yes, but it is my own, so I say the music stop, it stop. I say time to make kissing circle, we make kissing circle. Okay, uh, so your military powerful uniforms. Yes, I am wearing mine right now. Isn't that a little risque for public? Beautiful boys, let me flay you to the Netherlands. You see how different. Everybody in the Netherlands is a pervert on a bicycle. We wear this at the store in the library for the Wi-Fi, at the opera, and also the opera. Dick, how did you survive the battle? Well, uh, I had the Zeblomkin. What? Yes. It's a word with a secret meaning. Oh. For when you have a really good idea in fashion. Got it. Right, right. I was looking out at the sand and realized the aliens are not attacking the sand. So in order to not get attacked, I become the sand. So I lay down on the ground and I made myself a sand outfit. I made the sand pants, uh, the sand shirt, uh, the sand blazer, the sand windbreaker, the sand jean jacket, and of course the big sand blanket that cover entire body including whole head. Oh, so you just buried yourself in the sand? Hmm, so you say. How long were you in there? Well, I heard the screaming and the dying and the begging for the mommies and I thought, better down here. So, eventually, I just sort of went to the bedtime. 
few days later, I myself was dug up by a group of school children who were curious about a big pile of breathing sand. Not every day you dig up a big Dutchman wearing military powerful uniform latex. So they were like, So you don't know what happened to anyone? No. I just come back to home and right away open nightclub. Very fun nightclub called the Jeff Wiering Grabbebank Zuder. The club of your nightmares. How do you know that? I know stuff. Yes, club themed after my nightmares from Cyber Cowboys. The walls painted with all the friends who died, lots of scary aliens hanging from the ceiling, mattresses covered in blood, and all the time sand. Oh God, why would you do that to yourself? Trust me, in the Netherlands this is very funny. Oh, okay. I am doing fine. So boys, I'm coming to Los Angeles next week. My nephew Scott is getting married at Disneyland. And I was hoping you had a coach for crashing, yes? Oh, sure. Dick stayed on our couch for three months. Anyway, back to the horrific battle at the end of the story. Denis instructed the Rob Zombies to set up machine gun positions and sniper bunkers around the perimeter of Dave Skeleton's lab and the uncompleted new Grand Canyon. Just as the aliens were about to arrive, there was mass panic as it turned out Michael Chicklets had put all of the wrong ammo in each bunker. The 50 cal bullets were where the 556s should be, and the men with shotguns were given mortar rounds, etc. At this point, alien bombs began to explode just beyond the perimeter. Denise ragtag army of Rob zombies, various grips, PAs, and some catering people mostly take their positions. Some try to run, but Marlon Brando slaps them in the face and tells them to fight. Others try to strip out of their sexy uniforms because they're embarrassed. Jacket Coldweather fires up the ancient Spitfire and flies into the sky. He turns around immediately and sees a group of figures on the ground that he can't quite make out because he's legally blind and opens fire. He's firing on the set. The bullets hit the make-your-own-waffle station, which explodes, killing Griffin and Stewie as they make breakfast. The government was able to recover the black box from his plane and a brief recording. Take that, Hans. The sky belongs to Lieutenant Coldweather. What is that hulking mass off the port side? Must be the alien mothership. If I'm going down, I'm taking that bloody slag with me. Don't try and stop me, Denis. I'm giving them one up the duffer. Tally-ho! Jacket flies straight into the alien mothership, which is actually the side of a hill. Without air support, the Kanab aliens rush closer. Lasers fire into the bunkers on top of the set wall. The Rob zombies take cover. They are scared shitless. The blasts continue for a few seconds and then stop all at once. A bizarre silence fills the air. Eventually, Michael Chicklets gathers the courage to peek over the sandbags to see what's happening. The aliens are crowded around the front entrance of the gate. Standing still. Vampire rules. Realizing their advantage, the Rob Zombies open fire. It's a bloodbath. Well, more like a stinky green goo bath. Michael Chicklets personally blasts off the head of Mayor Broyle Dunson, who he thought was his boy. The lizard is killed too. The aliens are losing their generals and scattering. If they can't find a way to get invited into set, they'll lose everyone. And who would betray Denis? Why, none other than the traitor Jay Toronto himself.
Joining us to discuss the economic reality of grain prices in Eastern Europe is recent Russian citizen Stephen Segal. Does vidanya on your ass. Stephen, how are people in the Russian Federation reacting to these grain shortages? Look, bread prices cost a lot down at the bodega. And I'll tell you another thing. I let the aliens on the set. Let them in the side door. Pardon me, Stephen? I knew a lady named Meg Benedict. She had a crew of aliens, and I helped them because my Asian Billy clientele told me to. Pretty Billy said it was time to take over. And once I was king of the set, he would get me all the riches of Persia. Uh, sorry, Stephen, I'm trying to follow. By riches of Persia, do you mean grain reserves? Uh-huh. Thanks for having me. We're not clear about what happened, but it seems that Steven Seagal led a small party of aliens led by Meg Benedict and Bobtail Nag through a side door in the set wall. Once the aliens breach the perimeter, pandemonium breaks out. The few eyewitness accounts we have tell us very little. But about 10 minutes later, the U.S. military, backed by Hollywood, arrives in dramatic fashion. Helicopters signal their arrival by blasting the 20th Century Fox theme music. A tank at the front of the convoy rips across the desert with the MGM lion sitting on its hood. Humvees and men on horseback fan out from behind the tank and open fire. Walter Matthau had been waiting inside the replica train, hoping it would fall off the cliff and kill him. But when he heard the military arrive, he thought he'd found a much easier way to die. When I heard the 20th Century Fox music, I thought it was St. Gabriel and all of his angels coming to personally escort me to the gates of hell. And I went outside to meet my fate, eyes closed and arms open. The first person he saw was an old foe. I saw Dave Skeleton, who was conducting the battle like an orchestra. He turned to me and started to sing an evil song, something like, uh, I have the bomb, I have the bomb, I am evil's mom. Then I saw a man on horseback riding up and aiming his gun at Dave. Needing to die, I ran in front of Dave to intercept that bullet. What cruel ironies fate delivers us, that in my selfish quest to die, I would save the life of the man who ruined mine. Anyway, the guy just kept riding past me and turned around and shot Dave in the back. Finally untethered from the being who kept Walter's sins tied to this astral plane, Mathau began to simply walk. Yes, I just kept walking like a soul bound somewhere outside of heaven and hell, waiting for an update on where I belonged. I walked and walked until eventually I made it to Denver. And in Colorado, I got really into smoking weed and it mellowed me out. Solved a lot of my problems. I feel pretty good. Walter wasn't the only one to leave the battle on foot. We asked Zach Bogart about this. One of the things that popular media doesn't show you about the wars of antiquity and the ancient and early modern eras era, era, is that with land-based combat with armies, you know, like the Romans or the Gauls and forces of Carthage, that with all the fracas of ground-level hand-to-hand combat and the lack of communication that you can basically just dip. So who all did you see walking away from the battle? First, I ran into Kevin Costner in a field. He said he had tickets to a Mariners game that night, so he was walking down the street to Seattle. I think he thought it was a lot closer than it was. Then he said, let's go nurse, and then kept walking south towards New Mexico. Later, I saw Brando at a park sitting at one of those public wooden picnic tables. He had clearly been to a gas station where he had purchased a bunch of Entenmann's donuts and sponge cakes and had them spread out like a barbecue. He had also got a bottle of Mad Dog 2020 that he poured into a decanter. Did you see anybody else? 
No. Yeah, wait, I saw Denis. Right as I was heading out of the battle, I saw him cresting a hill headed somewhere. North? Northwest? Denis? No, Zach, Denis died in the battle. I don't know who y'all talked to, but I for sure saw Denis walking away alive. I mean, I used to clip that guy's toenails. I know him when I see him. So wait, you think Denis is alive? Yeah, probably. <gasps> Denis Cantair might be alive. Sounds like it's time for us to take a closer... Nate. What? Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, I'm texting Annapolis. Her neighbor is mad at her for parking in front of his driveway again. Jesus Christ, it's time for us to take a closer look. Hey listeners, do any of you run a successful TV show? Or an unsuccessful TV show? Does the writing staff on your one-season Hulu show about an office of all single moms need some assistance? Well, you're in luck, because today's sponsor of A Closer Look is us as writer's assistants. That's right. Now that the show is over, me and Nate plan to use the momentum we've built up to get our foot in the door of the scripted sitcom space. We need jobs big time. For the last five years, I've been working for a soybean corporation, analyzing field data in soil samples to make a theoretical map of which parts of the Amazon to cut down. And yesterday, I told my boss, soy you later. And I will never drive a bus for the city of Atlanta again. Why would we do this? Because all we want is our words to be on your TV. To be forever immortalized in credits that get pushed to the side of the screen while an ad for Grubhub plays. We'd shoot our own mothers to be as famous as a weatherman in Dallas, an NFL team doctor, or an astronaut now. And nothing will stop us. Whenever a tragedy happens, the first thing I say online is, this is so sad, I can't wait to write for a TV show that honors this. I have a spreadsheet of all of my favorite TV writers and make plans to run into them. Oh, you're on vacation in Yellowstone with your family? Kel Surprise. I have a fake writer's room in my house that's a long table full of bionicles, and I practice getting them coffee. Have you ever written for Modern Family? Look under your chair right now. I'll wait. Did you like them? There's more topical jokes where that came from. We've spent months honing the skills that would make us a great addition to any room. I'm excellent at remembering names. I've been memorizing the Vietnam War Memorial column by column. I'm up to J. I've invented a game that allows me to perfect my typing abilities by never hitting the delete key or something bad will happen. It's called Don't Wake the Scorpion. I've improved my joke writing ability by following around a doctor who delivers very bad news. And if I can't make the patient laugh right away, I don't get to eat. So are you hiring? And remember, we already know the answer. And you think you might be able to use Will and Nate as writer's assistance. Don't call us. We'll find you. The Battle of Kanab was over after an hour. As far as we can tell, none of the aliens survived. For cast and crew, the military reports that there were 32 dead and 85 wounded. Among the dead were Jacket Coldweather, Dave Skeleton, Griffin and Stewie, Michael Chicklets, Pearl Huet, Susie Short, Saturday Lewis, and until today, Denis Cantair. Colt Winchester survived the battle in his bunker watching Hang'em High. He emerged the next day to recover some of the set artifacts left behind for his museum. Elena Rothschild went on to be a vice president of Deutsche Bank, 
while hosting a German game show called Ver Vervolstandig das Puzzle, or Who Completes the Jigsaw Puzzle Fastest. Eusebio Crisco was rescued by the military, but he died three years later while trying to complete an art installation that consisted of building a casino at the center of the earth. And the hero of Cyber Cowboys, Kevin Costner, re-arrived in Kanab two days later, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, ready to film his new movie, The Postman. We were only able to talk to Kevin Costner once for this whole podcast. We tricked Kevin, a huge baseball fan, into thinking we were Mark McGuire and Mike Piazza. Hello? Who's this? This This is is Mike Piazza. Piazza. Shit. Wait, wait, sorry. Which one of you is Mike? I am. Fuck. All right. Who is this? I'm sorry, Kevin. This is Nate Fisher. I'm Mark McGuire. This is Nate Fisher and Will Sennett from the A Closer Look podcast. We wanted to ask you one or two questions about what you remember from Cyber Cowboys. Cyber Cowboys? Uh, I mean, I, I don't know what you're talking about. I remember in 1996, I was negotiating to be in a sci-fi movie called Cyber Cowboys. Last thing I remember was signing the contract to be in Cyber Cowboys. Next thing, I woke up at an acupuncturist in New Mexico getting realigned. And then I went straight to Kanab to shoot The Postman. I figured Cyber Cowboys was the original title of The Postman. But The Postman's a better title. Is that what you're asking about? No. Uh, have a good day, man. Bye, I really liked Open Range. The only other key figure who might have known Denis' whereabouts was Frank Castle. If Denis was alive, he would have reached out to Frank for support. So we got a judge to get us a subpoena to get us the raw recording session audio of Frank Castle's autobiography. We were looking for clues, and we almost found a lot more. <sighs> Chapter 9. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oof. Denis, what a case. I mean, the bloodbath, that's, I mean, talk about a bomb. I mean, I was retired for two years playing darts, ripping darts every day. Woo! <sighs> Took a fucking truckload of courage to come back and produce failure to launch. Speaking of failures, between you and me and whoever listens to this, I know where Denis is. He's over. Oh, 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 kick your tires and light the fires. This is Fukushima. Let's ride the big wave. Yep. Oh, it's too strong. Splat. That's Frank's heart literally exploding. He died recording the audiobook. So, fresh out of Leeds, we decided to fly to Denise's hometown of Beer Booze and look for clues there. Unfortunately, upon our arrival, we learned that the entire town had been evacuated in 2005 because a coal mine explosion created a fire under the earth that sent poisonous fumes up through cracks in the road and soil and has been burning nonstop to this day. We tried going to his childhood home, but we found that, like several other homes in the town, it had been sunk into a massive crater created by the fire. We were in the middle of nowhere, with no cell reception to call an Uber home, so we did what anybody would do. We went to a bar the next town over and got hammered. It was there, in the Black Lung Bar in DeSucky, Kentucky, where we finally got the break that broke our investigation wide open. While we were drinking our amaretto sours, we noticed the bartender was wearing a faded bowling shirt with the name Cantor on it. We spoke to him and we found out that he was Denise's uncle, who was also seven years younger than him. He told us that he hadn't heard from Denise since he left for Hollywood. But if he would have gone anywhere in the world, he would have gone to the bar in a nearby town called, and he spelled it for us, E-N-C-E-E-A-Y-A-S. N-C-I-S, Kentucky. 
Denia used to drive from beer booth to NCIS to go to a bar called the Crab Nebula. We drove there to find out why. We asked the patrons if they had heard of Denis, but we were met with blank stares. We decided to kill some time by blending in with the locals and playing the bar game on offer, Big Buck Hunter. Eventually, a man named Bibbo came over to us and asked, Are y'all trying to beat Psycho? We were confused until the game ended and we saw that the high score was set in 2002. Bibbo said he remembered being in that bar that day 20 years ago when Psycho set that record. And then he said that he would be in that bar when he died. And after he died, his corpse would be placed in a standing up coffin in the Crab Nebula for three days so people could leave offerings. But he also said that he remembers Psycho because he wore a beret and a starter jacket and looked very out of place. My game of Big Buck Hunter ended. I scored exactly zero. It showed the high scores. Thousands of points above all the records set last month was a record from 2002 by CYCO. Psycho. Cyber Cowboys? We asked Bibbo about Psycho's jacket. He said something about a cowboy. The hunt is on. We found the nearest bar that had Big Buck Hunter, a bar called the Brown Bunny in Shaved Bush, Kentucky. Top score, Psycho, 2005. We went across the border to Joe Klanisberg, Indiana, to Gerber's Tavern, where we found Psycho. High score, 2009. And then we went across another state line into beautiful Ohio, to the border town of Tourist Kill. The people at Tickle Kitty Sunshine Bar were happy to have us, and quickly showed us the Big Buck Hunter high score of Psycho, 2014. Eventually we had to turn south, and in Dayton we found Jim's Bar. Normal place, had a yingling, found a Psycho high score from 2018. And finally, taking 75 south, we came to the Cincinnati suburb of Al Gore, Ohio, and found a strip mall that housed a Kiyoshi Kurosawa's I Love This Bar and Grill. At this point, we were phenomenal Big Buck Hunter players, and we spent five hours there trying to beat the high score left by Psycho six weeks prior. We got 100 points short. So now, we knew we were in the right place. We asked the patrons if they knew Psycho, and most of them did. They said he was a mild-mannered man who loved baseball and movies and ran his Little League team like it was the Navy. We asked them to expand on that, and they said that all practices started exactly when they were scheduled, all the water and oranges were on a folding table in right field, and when he did a mound visit, instead of calling timeout, he would call cut. To us, that sounded less like the Navy and more like a film set. We waited a week and went to one of his Little League games. After the cops came and we explained to them why we had audio equipment and cameras at a youth sports event, we sat down and watched Psycho coach his team. He wore his cap down low. He had aviator sunglasses. Beneath those was a large handlebar mustache. Despite all that, we could feel the intensity radiating off of him. He didn't say much, but his team was playing well. And good directors know when to take a step back. He sat in a director's chair in the dugout. When he spoke to his players, he beckoned them over and muttered to them quietly. We couldn't hear what he was saying, but we could tell he was saying it with authority. This is in contrast to the other team whose players were running around the dugout like animals, while their beleaguered coach in the corner was spitting chewing tobacco into an empty Miller Lite can. After the game, we waited in our Uber for the coach to emerge. To our surprise, our prey came to us, accompanied by five burly fathers of players, we recorded this interaction. 
Do not be alarmed, we are podcasters. If only you knew the journeys we had to travel to find you. What the fuck are you fruits doing here? Do not be alarmed, we are podcasters. I'm gonna call the police. Wait, coach, what is your name? Uh, my name is Kevin Huang. Oh, wait, wait, wait. You're... What? I'm what? What was the significance of the director's chair you were sitting in? Nate, I don't think... That fold-out chair? I got it at a garage sale. I fucked up my back trying to get a skunk out of my gutter. I fell off the ladder. When did you move back to this area? Nate. Come back? I've lived here my whole life. Lived with the same girl since 1995. Nate, it's not him. Let's get out of here. Does the name Dave Skeleton mean anything to you? Fuck, fuck, shit. As investigative journalists, we are conditioned to believe that life is a series of stories, and every story has a conclusion. And if you follow a thread long enough, you'll eventually find the ball of yarn. But that's not the way the world works. Some mysteries are never meant to be solved. Sometimes clues aren't clues at all. What if Zach Bogart was wrong? What if Denis had actually died in the Battle of Kaneb? What if Psycho was just an Asian man who had lived in Ohio his whole life? We wish we had a more satisfying conclusion to this operatic story. But hey, it's the way she goes. In the moment, we were still pretty crestfallen, so we went to the store to buy some beer. We lined up at the checkout with some blue moons, funny enough, behind the other coach, and watched him pay with quarters for a pouch of red man and six-pack of Miller Lite Tallboys. And as he slowly counted out the change, a man behind us leaned over and said something, and the coach and I said the same thing at the same time. Come on, man. Time is money. Information is money. Holy shit. The other coach turned around just as shocked as we were. And after months of searching, me and Nate finally found ourselves face to face with Dennis Cantor. Do you play a lot of Big Buck Hunter? Fuck, fuck, fuck. Wait, don't run. Wait, we have a lot of questions. Bibby Monculus. <laughs> We waited in the hospital by Dennis' bedside for seven hours. He only had a broken ankle, but he was pretty sleepy. He had been on a bender before the game. We gently fed him some Gatorade as he came to. Ah, shit. What happened? We were introducing ourselves to each other, and you somehow got hit by a car? Ah, well, if you went through all this trouble to find me, you must know everything. Yeah. We know about Klaus Kinski and the aliens... We know about Bibby Monculus and Dave Skeleton's weapons program. Oh, and we found Pirates of the Colorado. Oh, shit. Where was it? Winslow, Arizona. What? Like, like, take it easy? Like the Eagle song? Yeah, that's how we found it. The song was a map. <laughs> God damn. That couldn't have been money. He doesn't have that in him. It was super fudge. That tracks. He was a thinker. We spent the next week talking with Dennis at his home and learning more about his new life. He had wandered across the Southwest for days and days, holding on to the camera as a last vestige of his life as a filmmaker. Eventually, he rode the rails back to Louisville, pawned his jewelry, stole a car, and drove from town to town to every big buck hunter console in the Midwest. Somewhere along the journey, he abandoned filmmaking for good. Man, I morphed into some kind of pretentious wolfman. That wasn't what I was supposed to be. I was supposed to get drunk and find ways to fight the teenage umps at Little League baseball games. 
I was fucking around with bombs and aliens. That's not me. Dennis had found peace. For him, it seems, you can go home again. You just have to blow up a Grand Canyon in order to do so. Eventually, we asked about the footage from the last camera, which he likely had. Man's ship must have lost it at some point. That kind of shit from my old life just don't matter to me anymore. So I just let it all go. I got nothing from the Cyber Cowboys days. Except for this crew jacket. Hell, you know what? Seems like you boys have thought about that movie more than I did. So here, take the jacket. That way, you'll know that you sort of got what you came here for. And with that, we both shook the once promising film director's hand that was now stained yellow by chewing tobacco residue, and we made our way back to Santa Monica. When we got there, we realized that neither of us really wanted the jacket. Yeah, it didn't really fit me. It was summer. So we sold it on Depop for $225 to a local kid in L.A. who collected vintage jackets. Four days later, we received this call. Well, what'd you think? About what? The jacket. Oh, yeah, listen, man, we really appreciated the gesture, but it didn't really fit either of us, and I'm sort of doing a wearing bigger clothes thing right now. Plus, it's really hot here. To be honest, we sold it. You sold it? You fucking idiots! I put the footage from the last camera in the line under the jacket, you fucking morons! I said you got what you came for! You fucking donkeys, that's the plot of the movie! Gosner's special jacket! Oh. Yeah, yeah. I'm fucked. Giving you that footage puts all of our lives at risk, especially mine. They're gonna know I'm alive now. I gotta flee the country. I'm leaving tonight, straight for Bogota. Fuck, I shouldn't have even told you that. I'm going somewhere in the Andes, and you'll never hear from me again. They'll probably kill me in Tennessee. Thanks, dickheads. He'll be fine. He's being dramatic. We should probably try to get that jacket back. We tried desperately to contact the young man who bought our jacket. We messaged the account Armenian Eminem 15 times before we were able to organize a phone call. Shit, you guys called me 27 times for this jacket. You must really want it. No, we actually don't want it that bad. I thought we really wanted it. Shut up, I'm negotiating from a position of strength. Let me tell you kids something about this business. Nobody needs vintage swag. Needing is not swag. Need is disgusting. Like being over 24. Hey, how old are you? I'm fucking 12. You guys seem all right for old heads. I'll give it to you for five. Deal. Thousand dollars. Fuck. See? You need it too bad. I can smell your desperation from here. I mean, shit smell like jerby, fam. I don't know what that means. What does jerby mean? For all you know, I'm making it up. Well, we don't have $5,000. We spent all our money on Ubers to Arizona. You got a house? We have a duplex in Venice. My dad owns the building. I want weekend access for the next six months to throw euphoria parties in your duplex. Man, is there going to be drugs there? And guns. All right, fine. Once Armenian Eminem gave us the jacket... We took it to Nate's mom's garage in Temecula, where we ripped it open and inside found exactly what we were looking for. Yards and yards of film. So we go out and get it developed, and we rent out the Chinese theater in Hollywood so we can watch it in style. The projector turns on. The celluloid whirs. The first images are blurry and shaky. The lights of nearby explosions flash. 
something lands by Denis' feet. Denis, look out! Grenade! I'm jumping on it! Me too! Pearl and Michael both jump on the grenade. Nothing happens. Oh, damn, it's just a rock. Whew. This shit is getting too hairy. Let's wait it out behind this small hill. Pearl and Michael run over the hill. It's actually a cliff. Denis has no time to mourn his friends. An army helicopter strafes the field. Saturday, look out! The camera sees Saturday Lewis running across the field towards Denis. The army is chasing and shooting at him. It seems the army did not recognize the famous actor because he's dressed like Miss Piggy. Oh, dear! No! A bullet hits Saturday. He falls to his knees, arms stretched as wide as they can go. As each bullet hits him, December 7th, 1941. Boom! Up, John Matt! Shiver me where's Miss Spinach? Now I'm Ringo, peace and love. Ho, 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 Merry Christmas! Saturday falls to the earth. Denis crawls along the grass to him. Wait, Saturday, wait! Just once. Just let me hear your real voice. Come on. I'm using my real voice, man. What do you sound like? <laughs> Bye, Lois. No! Was that Peter Griffin? What the hell? Family Guy wouldn't be invented for five years. Denis hides in the grass by Saturday's body. Eventually, his camera catches Bobtail Nag and Meg Benedict leading the last of the Kanab aliens in a death charge. Assemble around me, proud Phil Badung Jagetal of Front Deep. We came to this earth to collect DVDs. Because remember, on our planet, they are money. But now, I want you to think of home. Of your families. Your 15,000 brothers and sisters you live with under a roof made of goo. Think of our purple beaches and sinking your talons into the goo sand and drinking a goo daiquiri. There is no glory in one trillion goo balloons. That's what our money's called. Today, we fight for our planet. As the aliens charge, Denis makes his escape. He briefly turns back moments later to see the last of the aliens gunned down as the army rounds up prisoners from the movie set. He continues and never looks back. He runs for about 15 more minutes until he can't hear the helicopters. But then he comes across tire tracks in the middle of the desert. The tire tracks continue around a bend, and Denis can't see what's behind the hill. Something in him compels him not to follow the tracks. Instead, he hides, he crawls up the side of the hill, and peeks out into the clearing below. Three people, Billy Clientel, Susie Short, and Steven Seagal. Well, Billy Clientel, I brought it to you, 
my half of the bargain. How malicious. Now, put your sunglasses on Susie. No. No, Steven Seagal. Please don't make me look like you. It has to be done. Well, shit, lady, I don't get it either. But I get to live forever, man. Oh, they're so sweaty. Ah, uh, don't worry about it. Now the kimono. Come on, man. I got this kimono special from a shop in Hamamatsu. I stole it. Do it. Steven Seagal puts his kimono on Susie, who has been floating upside down this whole time. This makes it very hard for Seagal to put the kimono on, but eventually he does, and Susie says... Several skeletons rise out of the ground. One has an upright bass, one has a guitar, one has a fiddle. Kind of what you would imagine the demon band in The Devil Went Down to Georgia would look like. The skeletons dance around Susie before grabbing her and all at once floating through the surface of the earth down into hell. So that's it, boss? Now I get to make good movies forever? Yes, you get to make movies forever. What do we do now? We go rule the world. I have become the nefarious wizard. And so Steven Seagal and Billy Clientel climb into the front seat of Billy's Corvette. In the back seat of the Corvette is an 11 foot long glowing missile. They drive through the sand, not on any road, straight into the sunset toward the evening star. Denise shuts the camera off. And that, listeners, is the story of what really happened on the set of the 1996 production of Cyber Cowboys. A story that captivated us, and hopefully captivated you. And rest assured, if there's another story with odd characters, political intrigue, dastardly crimes, and the presence of demons, we'll be there to take... Wait a second. Does Steven Seagal have a nuke? 